Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So you first. What's astonishing you this week? I'm astonished by our friends in the United Methodist Church. Um, As you know, I had a Thanksgiving service Thanksgiving morning at 7 o'clock, which meant I had to get up at like 4.30. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The travel from my house to um, this church at the other end of the county. Uh, Shout out to the saints at Hunter's Chapel United Methodist Church in Cornelius. Because they came to play. They came ready (laughs) to worship. And you and I said on the walk last week, you know, if people are going to get up on Thanksgiving at that time, that I had better show up, better like, I'd it. better be there, and <laughs> yeah. I can't have my mind on needing to travel later that day to Atlanta or, you know, the Thanksgiving meal or anything else. I've got to be present. Yeah, because people aren't showing up for sentimentality or That's right. precious moments memes. Yeah. Yeah, and holy cow, they were ready to worship even before I got into the sanctuary. I mean, they're already singing and praising the Lord and giving testimonies and I'm thinking, okay, these Methodists are okay. All right, I I, I like this. So um, the preaching moment went really well. I mean, from the beginning, from the first words of the message, they were just with me and there and present, and uh, the whole experience was good, and it really was. It was truly thanksgiving and praise to God, and I left on a high and very grateful that I had been asked to... um, be a part of that worship experience. And I'm astonished uh, because in the in the middle of that worship experience, there was a time of announcements and someone uh, stood up and gave an announcement that the Methodist church, the bishop was starting a new ministry, a uh, contemporary ministry that was also going to have with it uh, senior citizen housing. And it sounded wonderful and powerful, and uh, the the worship that they were describing, the worshiping community that they were describing, sounded uh, something like uh, we'd be, what we had been talking about at Dorada Church. And then it was announced that it, it's going to be started a block away from our um, our congregation. And so, you know, some real mixed feelings, just very very happy for them and that and that they see this need in our community because uh, frankly I see it as well and it is confirmation that I'm hearing that we are hearing the Lord correctly that we are we're seeing what God wants to do in our community um, they have a bit I think a bit of an advantage uh, because of their their government system, you know, the bishop can say, okay, mm-hmm. this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so in our system, there just has to be much more a majority buy-in, buy-in right. right? Yeah, no, I, so I want to respond to both of those things. The second first, my longstanding critique with our denomination, the PCUSA, not individual leaders, because I don't know where individual leaders' hearts are, but the culture as a whole is we we say things and we say we have values, but then we don't 
want to make the investments to live them out. So like I have been a part of the Charlotte Presbytery since 2004. And in that time, we have never intentionally planted a new congregation. Never, not once. So the fellowship place was a spinoff, but that happened outside of the purview or desire of the Presbytery. That's right. You know, the Grove has transformed and I credit the Presbytery with a lot of that, but also we... Um, are not a new church, A, and B, if, you know, the presbytery dropped out of the process halfway through, so that would not have happened were it not for the people at the Grove. And there are these new worshiping communities, but these new worshiping communities are not churches. And by saying we're prioritizing new worshiping communities, what we're not saying but doing is saying we want to look like we're planting churches, but we don't want to invest in the leadership and the infrastructure for them to actually be mm. successful. And so it costs it costs something to start a church. You need actual support. And what the Presbytery does is basically, and I think this is, I mean, I, it would be interesting for me to know nationwide what how this works, but we devote so many resources to the upkeep of our institutions that we don't have any resources left to um, start new institutions, start new churches. We do these new worshiping communities, many of which are spun out of already existing Existing communities that are some of the most wealthy and most well-resourced because they can afford to do the match that's necessary to have some kind of sustainable thing. And I just, I mean, yes, the Methodists are saying, we want to start a new community. The bishop as a leader is saying, I'm going to invest resources in this way. And so it can happen. And we do this like lukewarm halfway in, halfway out thing and just start a bunch of new worshiping communities. And then we're like, well, they're not very successful. Well, I mean, of course they're not very successful because you're asking pastors to do it with no support, to do it with no real funding. And I'm not talking about building a building. I am not talking about building a building. But giving people resources so that they can have some staff, so that they can have some time to do the development work, helping out with meetings, basic expenses, so that people have a little bit of breathing room to help something grow. I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. And I think that we have rightly said, we're not going to plant churches anymore the way we did in the 60s. Hallelujah. Amen. But instead of coming up with a viable alternative for 2020, we've just decided we don't need any new churches. We'll just resource the churches we already have. And because we need you know, a majority buy-in and because so many of our local congregations are so internally focused on themselves what our presbyteries function from a place of anxiety and not from a place of vision. So kudos to the Methodists and they have their own problems, but I, yeah, I would love to see, I mean, how is it that I have been in this presbytery so long and we've never planted a church? That is astonishing. astonishing. Yeah. 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 And it just says something about, you know, there's the values we say we have and then, and I'll talk about this later, there's the values that our budgets reveal that we actually Mm. have. And, we don't value evangelism or sharing the gospel in the Peace USA in the way that I would like us to. Well, the bishop, the Methodist bishop in our area, actually closed a church a block away from us two years ago. Mm-hmm. And so now they're bringing that back. And so that that church was declining. I think it it was down to maybe 30 or so people. And uh, so they closed it for two years, and now they're bringing it back as something new. And what we're seeking to do 
Um, like I had a conversation my first year at Dorita Church with um, everyone that would meet with me. And I'm so grateful for the oldest members of that community because the oldest members of the church said, look, we realize something needs to happen here and we're glad that you're here. We don't think we're the ones to do it. And so um, at first, at first I was a bit disappointed because I just wanted to rally the troops and say, charge, let's go into the community. Right, and there's a biblical precedent for that. Like to get yes. to a certain generation and say, I'm too old for this, is to ignore the biblical narrative. Sure. Completely. Sure. Abraham, Isaac. But grateful for their honesty. <laughs> grateful for their honesty, but also it's just revelatory. Yes, but we developed another model. For example, in Chronicles, uh, David, just before he dies, he... Um, has his son Solomon named king, and David um, marshals the resources of mm-hmm. the nation so that when Solomon is ready, Solomon can build the temple instead of David. Mm-hmm. And so what, what we're thinking is that uh, for some of our senior members, this the season they are in, we are in, is marshaling resources so that the next generation of believers of 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 next generation of believers in Jesus can prosper at Derrida Church. That's just a harder, it's a more difficult and more complex leadership move in a congregation where it has to be majority vote instead of a bishop rule. Well, I just think it's hard that we make this assumption that there will always be a next generation of believers. Mm-hmm. And and that's an assumption. Like, how will they know if no one tells them? And I, I just feel like in our connectional church, there's sort of this unspoken feeling that, like, if you were one of us, you'd already be one of us. Mm. So I don't have any, you know, like, I might feel some kind of compulsion to enact my faith by going out and doing a good deed on behalf of Jesus, but I'm not interested in sharing my heart, um, heartfelt relationship and life transforming journey with Jesus with another person, maybe because I don't have it. Maybe I see more my faith in Jesus Christ as like a part of my identity and the lifestyle I was born into and the status I have. Or maybe just because I think like I'm special enough to want Jesus and love Jesus and prioritize Jesus. But you probably, if you're not here, you probably wouldn't be. I mean, I just, I would like people to recover a sense of urgent humility about the fact that, I mean, I think one reason people are exhausted when they think about building new churches is because we have this program model of how a church grows, as opposed to, no, a church grows by the movement of the Holy Spirit. And that's terrifying because it means we don't control it and it makes us vulnerable instead of actors, we're recipients. But anyway, whatever. Well, for us, we had to go back to why we exist. Right. Right. So that whatever we feel called to do next, it's not our why isn't we've got to save our church. Correct. Right. Our why is the mission of Jesus. We're stewarding a mission that Christ has given to his church on the corner of Sugar Creek and um, and, and I just Nevin think Road. Any of us, and I do think that in the PCUSA, people. I do think because of a uh, because of an emphasis on sort of good scholarship and good theology. I mean, I think most Presbyterians do have a, a pretty good, authentic grasp of what the gospel actually is, um, and and there's it's not like it's hard to look around and see that a lot of people 
just don't know. So they support behavior that's just clearly antichrist, right? I mean, they just don't they don't know the Jesus that they are authentically um, choosing. They've been told they've been sold a lie about who Jesus is and what Jesus's values are. So I don't know why seeing that clearly doesn't give us a kind of urgency to say, no, no, we need to be out there sharing that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that the way of humility is the way of strength and that loving our neighbors and serving our neighbors and who is my neighbor and what does it mean when we see a refugee or an outcast? I mean, these are all questions that have a clear biblical answer. And in the common culture, that biblical answer is not only, I mean, it's it's being presented as the exact opposite of what it is. And so I don't know why we don't understand that we have something to say and something to share with the world. And that's not going to happen by getting a Presbyterian pundit on Fox News. It's going to happen by creating communities of radical self-giving love that people come in and are, can belong before they believe or behave, and we just trust, not that we can change anyone, but that God is still in the business of giving people second birth. And anyway, ran over. So oh, no, I want to say one other oh, okay. thing about what you said. <laughs> I, um, I just really appreciate what you said about showing up to preach and walking into a community where you know, the people have come um, with great expectation and great intentionality about what they are there to do. And, um, you know, I say this all the time, and I really mean it, that when people um, will say things about my preaching and so much of what happens on Sunday morning, and this is not something that I understood. Like, if, if 20 years ago me heard me saying this right now, She'd be like, whatever, (laughs) like this is bunk, but this is going to be good. Well, I just, what we do on Sunday morning is a spiritual activity. And so it's not just a matter of words on a page or truths spoken. It's a, it's a spiritual exchange, like brokered by the Holy Spirit for sure. But I mean, there's something about that moment not just of preaching, but the whole moment of worship that as a worship leader, you can prepare and you can care and you can do everything in your power to you know, call, show up wholeheartedly. And it makes a difference how the other people in the community gather. So if there are people in the pews who are praying for the Holy Spirit to fall on the congregation, if there are people who've been keeping it in prayer all week, if there are people who show up hungry, like wanting to receive, and that's a thing. I don't care what's going on in worship. I mean, excluding like Nazi rallies, (laughs) but even though I, I think there might be sort of really subversive ways the Spirit might be at work in them, but like people can be fed in worship if they come to be fed, regardless of how excellent, I hate that word, the worship is. Mm. If you come wanting in humility to receive a revelation from God, to receive strength, you'll get it. If you come sort of with a critical spirit or, or ready to invest, if the people around you are worthy of your investment, I mean, you know, then you may not. But I just, I mean, there's, it's so true that who the congregation is and how they show up spiritually matters. It, ma- it it is transformative. And that's why sometimes you can you know you can read a sermon on the page and be like, "Eh," but in the moment in the room for the people who are there, 
I mean, it's it's transformative, and I I think we forget that if I what we are doing is spiritual, and so if you're not comfortable with that, then I don't know why you're in the life of the church. And so when people um, in my community will thank me for preaching and I'll, and I say it and I mean it like this community makes me the preacher that I am because I know that people are coming for no other reason than that they want to worship Jesus and they want to hear the word of Christ as revealed in scripture. And if that word is challenging, they want it. And if that word is comforting, they want it. And if that word rebukes them, they want it. And that's, you know, if people don't want to receive it, then that is really difficult as a preacher when you have to constantly struggle with measuring out how much truth can I give people that they'll hear. Anyway, so that, I just, that's really wonderful. And um, I just think it's good for, I think a lot of times members feel like they care a lot, but they don't feel like there's really anything they can do that will make a difference. Yes, and the the word contribute comes Mm -hmm. to mind. Right. um, And I think, forgive me if this is wrong, but I think it was... Um, Soren Kierkegaard, who said that when it comes to worship, it's not what's happening on the platform that ultimately matters. Mm-hmm. He says you've got to imagine the roof being taken off of the church and the whole church pew to platform. That that's the whole the, the audience, quote unquote, oh, is yeah. heaven. And so we are all we're all on stage, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And and members of the congregation bring so much, add so much uh, to the whole service from beginning to end. They're the worshipers. They are the worshipers. I mean, and we're worshipers too, but, you know, worshiping in a community has power. Yes. And and I just, you know, one of the the things I think about a lot is um, we we had a member of our church, one of the saints at the Grove, a woman named Suzanne Mabia, and she um, was born in the Congo, and her English was good, I mean way better than any other language that I speak. And she spoke three languages, um, but not the greatest. And so she, I know, couldn't, you know, probably understand as much in the sermons as I wish she could have. And and her limited English obviously limited the way that she could um, interact with people in the congregation. But she sat in the same place every Sunday and prayed before, during, and after worship. She just prayed and prayed wow. and prayed. I mean, silently. I mean, I just knew that because I knew nobody else, I mean, it wasn't for show in any way. And and after she died, and I, you know, I believe in the communion of saints and I, but I mean, it's different. It, like, it mattered. And I don't think that people realize how much it matters. And I don't think that people realize how much all of us, you know, we get so focused on the program, on the task that we need to accomplish and the quality of that task that we we don't notice so much um, the spirit w- in which we do it. Yes, well, I think many worshipers show up with an expectation that something external, something outside of them is going to happen. Something maybe on the mm-hmm. platform, maybe someone's going to sing something, maybe mm-hmm. someone's going to say something uh, that is going to move them mm-hmm. instead of 
I've come here to contribute mm-hmm. <laughs> to what is happening in this space. And what I know about it, honestly, is like back way, way, way back in the day when I did a lot of theater, and I didn't like this either then, but they would talk a lot about like the energy and, mm-hmm. you know, and I, mm-hmm. I hate energy talk. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, well, energy talk is just spirit talk. Mm. And, you know, when an audience comes ready to be delighted, to be inspired, to be, it changes you know, it's just a, yeah. it's something that exists in a particular okay, so time and space. At Hunter's Chapel, United Methodist Church, this Presbyterian preacher found himself not simply walking up and down the aisle while preaching, but like jumping. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a level of excitement that is not typical of me. Uh, and that... And <laughs> Those folks who were from Derrida who were there, uh, I got some text messages later that day saying, boy, you you really took the brakes off. And my response was, no, it wasn't it wasn't some conscious, you know, I'm really going to let it all hang out in this service. It was me being caught up in what was happening in the room. It was mm-hmm. it was an us, mm-hmm. not a me. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to be clear, certainly the pastor, the preacher, is still responsible for doing their work, right? Absolutely. So I'm not suggesting that... If know, it's a bad sermon... It's not the congregation's right. fault yeah. at all. No, 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 no. But I definitely <laughs> think, you know, if we believe what we say we believe about God being all powerful and all good and all consuming. I mean, if God can make a donkey talk, then God can speak to anybody, even through a dud sermon, even through a quote, less than, you know, adequate. um, Well, if, if the Lord is present where two or three are gathered, Mm -hmm. then the Lord is present Mm -hmm. and that matters. And, and obviously that would be, that is transformative in and of itself. So I don't think that the worshipers are responsible for doing the work of the preacher, but I do think you know, priesthood of all believers is a real thing. Their presence matters. And the way, and their yes. posture, and their orientation. Because and, worship is a verb. And and not just in the sanctuary, but then throughout the week and in every sort of ministry activity or task that we participate to recognize that if this is going to have real power, it's going to be because the spirit of the Lord is in it, not because of my natural gifting or talent. And so if that is the case, then that frees me to do my best also for my best to be less than good enough. And also just to really focus on who God is and my why, why am I doing this? And what do I, you know, in an awareness of what the Holy Spirit might be doing that's beyond kind of your agenda or your playbook. So anyway, whatever. Let's move on to what we're... So what's astonishing you, though? Well, I mean, we, we're we're running so long. But I, I'll i just say um, we... So first Sunday of Advent was this past week, and we um, light an Advent wreath at the Grove, and we also, at the house, um, do... It's not a wreath, but we light for four candles. I mean, obviously just one right now. And I just, I mean, maybe it's very much in line with the earlier conversation. Um, it is, it always astonishes me how powerful those simple rituals are, how meaningful it is for people to be invited into them. Um, that the reality is to participate in the life of the Holy Spirit, um, 
I mean, it's not precluded by having a graduate level degree, but it's not required. We don't have to have some great theological understanding or some elevated, you know, biblical point when we show up ready to be used um, and ready to be um, to ready to receive a revelation. It's powerful. So. I just, the family that um, lit the Advent wreath on Sunday was a, um, a woman, Ijoma Obed, and her two sons, Alpha and Oscar, and they are from Nigeria and are recent um, immigrants to the country, and just um, a beautiful story of, of hope and perseverance and, um, you know, being radically dependent upon the Lord and just the, the reverence um, of, through which they did that and the power of it, um, it's transforming to me and just one, wanting to make sure that in in all of my busyness um, and in all of the cultural pressures about gift giving, which I'm not anti-gift giving, but that I, I just want to make space in my life for that simple ritual and, and explaining it to my kids, like, why do we do this? Because ultimately we believe that the light comes from God and not from us. And we want to stop and be aware of what God is doing and how can we be a part of that and make space for that and, and recognize that God doesn't need us to, you know, crawl on our knees across the Sahara Mm -hmm. desert as, you know, Mary Oliver points out to just, just to stop and breathe and that God is, is doing the work of salvation, has done the work of salvation. And it's our job to live in light of that. Um, So anyway, that's what I'm, astonished at the power of ritual and trying to just keep keep walking in that astonishment and and not fall under the illusion delusion that somehow I need to create um the holiness of being the body of Christ mm, or the quote magic of Christmas I mean that the reality is this is about remembering something that has happened and can never be undone and living our lives oriented to how God came and what Emmanuel means and then and then how we make different choices because we see how God has revealed himself in Jesus. So that's what's astonishing me. What are you what are you thinking about? Uh, I am rereading portions of N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. Wait, I'm sorry. Shocking. I know. You, I know. Okay. Shocking. I know. And I just purchased uh, his new book. Uh, it's on the way. Thanks, Amazon. Um, he co-authored with Michael Bird. It's about the, the New Testament in its world. That aside, uh, I'm rereading the first book I ever uh, purchased and read um, by N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope, and it's subtitled Rethinking Heaven and the Resurrection, something like that. And his whole point is that, uh, especially in the West, we tend to think of life after death and life after death being life in heaven and life in heaven as being disembodied spirits, Mm -hmm. right? And so he's reminding us that, no, the biblical witness is that there is a, his words, life after, life after death, and it's not up there, it's down Down here here. and it's embodied. And I'm rereading that, um, and I totally agree with that, but I'm rereading that because I am aware that as a preacher, I say things in the preaching moment and in my conversations with people and and at funerals, and I make assumptions, and I I don't unpack things. And so uh, this week, 
in the text, uh, John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I've preached that text many times, but I've never landed on the kingdom of heaven. I just assume that people have an understanding of what that is and what that means. But in rereading N.T. Wright, I'm just aware that I need to unpack that for people and remind them that kingdom of heaven is not going to heaven when you die. Kingdom of heaven language is about heaven invading earth, the power, the goodness, the holiness, the Thy justice. That will be done on earth yes. as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is the reversing of the fall. It is, it is that great day when all things will be made right. right. And it's so frustrating um, and diabolical, uh, deliberate word choice, that what people know about sort of the the ultimacy of salvation is rapture, which is an anti-biblical misunderstanding of scripture, as opposed to what is central in scripture, you know, through the prophets and, and the New Testament, which is this idea of, you know, the lion laying down with the lamb and they shall neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, which is what we did, you know, knowledge of the earth, Knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Just mm-hmm. this idea that the world is is redeemed um, back yes. to Eden, and people, all people, all nations, streamed to the mountain, yes. and uh, you know, and and know God's law. And it's not just well, this earth and most of the people in it are garbage. So let's burn it up and throw it away and start yes. over. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's not the biblical witness. That's the rapture, that's, mm-hmm. you know, what's his face's understanding? LaHaye what's his name? And, LaHaye, mm-hmm. right? Jenkins and LaHaye. But that's not the biblical witness, and people don't know that. Uh, and that's that's a really difficult... And know. so, like, I have a funeral coming up this week, and so often the language is, um, you know, this world is not my home, um, um, can't wait to go to my true home. And at some level, I get that. Um, but we forget that God intends for us to occupy this planet, right. a redeemed people and a redeemed planet. But not by our efforts and our, yes. you know, it's not like, yes. let's all go join Greenpeace and yeah. use canvas grocery bags and everything will be fine. That's, and that's, I think, you know, the uh, the misinterpretation well, on the other side. In our English translations of the Bible, we, we I think we must understand that the New Testament uses the word world in two different ways. Right. Sometimes when the Bible says world, the Bible is talking about the creation itself, the planet, right. the trees, the grass, the oceans. And sometimes when the Bible talks about the world, it's, it's talking about, about the culture. world system. It's talking about right? yeah, culture. Yeah, and I try to say that to really differentiate yeah. between creation and culture. That creation is good and will be redeemed and reveals God. And God loves, God so loved the, the world. world. Right, but culture is different. Yes. And so when we say, like, do not be conformed to the world, that's not saying yes. creation is garbage. Yes. It's saying the cultures created by humans, that's what we need and to... And when we don't clarify that, then you get a theology of God hates this planet, this world, and boy, we can't wait for God to 
wad it up and throw it into right. the and trash can. So who can. cares about the whales? So who, right? Because yes. they're just yeah. yeah. And I, but I do think um, I think the time for clarifying that is when we do hopefully solid biblical teaching every week. Um, I don't, you know, I am so aware of the way that words. I mean, we mean them one way and people hear them another way and everybody hears things in their context. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the moment of grief, the moment of death, it's not the time to clarify that we agree that when we say kingdom of the heaven, we mean the same things. I mean, people... Can I push back on that a little bit? You can. I have started using the eulogy, the message time, to do all of the normal expected um, grief over death, hope of resurrection, but also at some point to have um, some point in which I say, look, here's the biblical witness about what happens after you die. Here, here is the Christian hope. Not that we're going to float around, but one day... Christ will return. The dead in Christ will rise. We will be embodied. We will be on this planet. It will be redeemed. It will be paradise. If you think this world is beautiful now, wait until that day. But until then, Jesus has prepared a place for us. And if we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And so there is, there is glory now, but that is not the end. And so yeah. your hope of seeing your loved one again, yes, that is true. I mean, that's interesting. I just, I don't know. I've never, for me, the thing I want to do in every um, service of witness to the resurrection that I've ever done is name the particularity um, of the image of God that was in the life of that person. And give thanks to God for it, mm-hmm. and 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 really make sure that people really make sure that people know that this is not a. And I'm not saying that yours would be, but that it's not a generic thing that could be said about anyone. That there's something about this life that is extraordinary and holy and valuable, even in its brokenness. And we need to name name that and give thanks to God for it. And so I just, I, I don't know. I just I don't feel led to do that kind of theological reconstruction work in that moment. Although I certainly think it's really, I mean, it's important. It needs to be done. So anyway, we don't have to be the same to be friends. We don't have to agree. We don't have to agree on everything. We don't, we don't, but we better move this podcast along. So I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. A friend of mine, um, who is not local, um, is getting ready, um, this week to have the talk with her congregation, um, like so many of our congregations and like almost all of the congregations that are led by women, um, this is a congregation that has been in decline for decades and has come to a place where, um, they can see that if they don't change, they will die. And, um, they have a, um, a, a real sincere, um, hope um, in in Jesus and respect for my friend's leadership and um, desire for new life to be born out of this congregation. They they have those values and they're really sincere um, in them. And um, they have um, a huge financial, like like glacial 
problem, right? Like something that's just been moving very slowly, but um, inexorably for decades. Um, And it's really difficult when all the sessions before you have just said, like, this is what our budget is going to look like. And when you still have the money that you can meet the deficit, and so you keep the staffing model and you keep the you just keep the budget that you've Same been given, programming. right? You just you just do because that's what you do, and so you have a hope for a different future. But you um, and you are articulating different values in your mission, and they're very sincere. But when you look at the budget, I mean, a budget is a values document, and so yes. um, my friend needs to go to the session and say, "Hey, what we say we want for our future." is not reflected in the reality of this budget. Particularly, there are some aspects of worship that are very sacred to us, um, traditional aspects of worship that are very sacred to us, that we are sinking enormous, uh, you know, enormous, if you think of the budget as a pie, like a huge piece of that pie is going to make sure that we can execute these very traditional aspects of worship that are very meaningful for the people who are already here. Um, and, and, and yet we say we're trying to reach out to outsiders, knowing that these very traditional ways of worship are not going to connect with them, are not going to be meaningful to them, but yet we're putting a huge amount of our budget into maintaining these traditions and these institutions, and we've got nothing left to reach out and serve our neighbors with. You know, we're, we're and I know that you have had this experience too of serving a church where they're saying, hey, pastor, we need to cut your hours, um, but our organist who makes, you know, $25,000, $30,000 a year to come play on Sunday mornings, like that person's salary can't be touched. And it's just hard that you have to sit down with the congregation and say, hey, this budget might have been really faithful 30 years ago. You're going to have to say to some people who are on your staff, who you very much love, you know, not we don't want you, but we literally can't afford you. It's not personal. We cannot afford to pay you um, what you have always been paid. And honestly, the skills that you contribute to this organization are not necessary in order to achieve our mission in this generation. And we are unwilling to do that because we think being a good Christian means we have to give people what they need or what they expect. And the reality is churches do not exist to employ certain Christians. Mm. That is not why churches exist. And if there are supposed to be ministry leaders who essentially are saying, if paying my salary means the church has to close down, then that's what it means, Mm. then those people should not be in leadership of a congregation that is trying to revitalize. And if there is a congregation who wants to pay its music staff, its financial staff, its administrative staff more than they pay their pastor, then that is not a church that actually wants to transform. And I mean, just as we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, you can say that you want to share the gospel and start new churches, but if you but if you're not willing to give people the tools they need to do that work, then you can't be surprised and you can't blame the people who aren't part of your congregation when you haven't, you know, I mean, I can, 
I can walk into the Apple store and say, I really, really want a new iPhone. And they'll say, this is how much it costs. Yeah. And I don't care how much you want it. You're not getting it unless you're willing to pay for it. And we want to not pay for it and get it. And And then when we don't get it, we want to look around our neighborhood and be like, if those people really love Jesus like I do, I'm sorry. Self-giving, sacrificial love is what we're called to do in ministry and especially in evangelism. And if we're saying people can come in here after I get mine and everything is the way that I want it, then, I mean, our churches are not going to grow. And so um, I just am praying for my friend um, who serves a church in another part of the country. Um, I'm praying for the leadership of, of her community. And, you know, we get so mired in guilt and shame and that's just really not helpful. It's not even about we did something wrong in the past. It's about today is the today is the day. Yeah. You know what what is God doing now? It doesn't matter if we think we should be somewhere else by now. This is where we are. And if we feel half dead, well, God does God's best work out of mm. half dead people and organizations. So that's nothing to be ashamed of. But we a budget is a moral document. And so we need to make sure our budgets reflect our values, or we just need to admit the truth that we don't actually have the values that it feels so good to claim that we have on Sunday mornings. Yeah, my experience is that often when it comes to church budgets, we will ask, the first question we will ask is, can we do this? When the first question we should ask is, is this faithful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. Like, no one is entitled to be paid to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? So members in our churches don't show up and think, well, you know, I should be paid to be a part of this congregation. I'm, it's not like, you know, pe- people in our congregations are have to trust God in the job market, have to trust. I mean, that just, I mean, I just think that there is a whole generation of ministry leaders, not just clergy, but a lot of clergy mm-hmm. who just feel like, no, I gave my life to Jesus, so I am entitled to pull down this much salary because this is what I'm worth. And I mean, that is just so anti-Christ to say, to buy into the culture's lie that a person's paycheck reflects their value. And the reality is we are called to be servant leaders. And and I think we feel so much guilt to have to go to someone in the congregation and say, we can't afford to pay your salary. But the reality is if someone's working for the church, it's supposed to be because they feel called to accomplish the mission of the church. And if you don't, if you feel called to be paid by the church, then you should not be in a leadership position anyway. And I feel like I can say this because I've Mm. walked this. Mm -hmm. So I I don't want to hear it. Like I'm not someone who's sitting there being paid a full-time salary or being paid benefits or paying into the pension of the PCUSA. I'm happy to have given up all of those things because the Lord showed me very clearly who do I think I am feeling like I'm entitled to those things. And so anyway, that, that is what I'm thinking about. And, and I'm right now thinking I just spoke very, very candidly about what I actually think. So I'm grateful that the tens of people who listen to this podcast are not. Uh, but you're exactly right. It's about the mission. It's about, it's about the, mission. the mission. It's, it's about, about the mission. The mission. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yes. Um, so what are you preaching? I am not preaching this week. It That's is right. our cantata. So it's all music. You will be singing. I will be singing. I will be singing, which is um, will be great. And our um, musician, who is incredible, our music leader, who is a who is a volunteer, who is not paid, and who 
brings so much value and excellence and dedication into our community. And um, anyway, she has um, crafted together just an amazing um, group, uh, pieces of music coming from all kinds of unexpected places. Um, and we've written some things to kind of stitch them all together. And wow. I mean, talk about a participatory, you know, worship service. Anyway, it's just really beautiful. And I, I think there's something really, um, right in the Advent season to have a worship service. That's just all, all song because there's so much singing in the narratives surrounding the birth of Christ. And I do think there's just something and someday I'd love to really think and drill down and be able to articulate this better but there's just something about the unnecessariness of singing mm. and an act of praise that makes it really powerful that they're just again because this season is all about not doing for God but celebrating what God has done that's so good that you know our response is to praise and to develop devote time and energy into praising and to make that praise accessible to everyone, mm -hmm. not just an elite few, but to everyone. And anyway, so I'm excited for That's that. That's great. For me, when I read the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Luke, it just reads like a musical to me. It is. Right? You it know, is. you have this narrative, and then people just break out in song when they see, when they experience what God is doing in their midst. Well, and I think like it's part of the reasons that some people, some sophisticated people really hate musicals because there's just so much earnestness mm. and vulnerability in singing that, that a person would be going around their life, their ordinary life, and then just be moved to burst into song. That's not something that, I think Americans, I won't speak to other um, cultures, you know, we, we wouldn't do that. Um, um, singing is reserved for the experts, for mm. the uber talented in certain times in certain places, and it doesn't penetrate our lives. And yet in the biblical, you know, in that moment, people are moved to song. The angels are, are moved um, to song. That's and good. so there's something about the Christian faith being a, being a singing faith, regardless of how you feel about music. Um, anyway, so what are you preaching about? Preaching Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist shows up and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah. And I'm um, looking forward to that. Uh, um, this week, our uh, Advent word is peace. And so it, it's, it's, it's challenging to, um, uh, to connect John the Baptist with peace, peace because John the Baptist, I mean, he's just a rough prophetic type and he's calling people to repentance and he calls the, the Pharisees a brood of vipers and says, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? And I, I'm really grateful for the guys at the, um, at the Bible Project. Uh, they've done this video word study on the word peace. Uh, both the Hebrew and, and Greek words for peace in the Bible. And basically, they've summarized the biblical idea of peace. Uh, is, it's not, not the absence of conflict, but it is taking things that are broken and making them whole. Yeah, I mean, it's shalom, yeah, this it's idea shalom. of the mutual flourishing mm -hmm. and well-being of all things, and it's no longer adversarial or antagonistic. And I think when we were talking about it this past week about... Um, our Advent theme is the glorious impossible, and we were just talking about how much um, the hope we have in Jesus is just, we just hope for what seems possible, like the best version of what seems possible, and that's just blasphemous. And the the impossible hope comes from, you know, we were looking at passages in Isaiah and these you know, these, these revelations of what the redeemed creation will be like, and that is impossible 
which is how we know that it's of of God. And if if that's what you think is coming, then you can welcome John the Baptist and that feels like good news because it doesn't feel like it's the same game, just a different set of winners and losers, right? But that's what we're afraid of. And so when we get afraid of the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's because we think the kingdom of heaven is going to be like the kingdoms of earth. And so the conquerors, winners take all. So if I, you know, if this kingdom collapses, I might be worse off in the next kingdom. And it's because we fundamentally misunderstand the shalom of God. And when we hear John the Baptist say, repent, I think the image is immediately the guy on the, the street preacher mm-hmm. who is yelling, turn or burn, when repentance, biblical repentance is an opportunity to, to turn around and return to God. It is, it is, it's, it's, it's not, it's not hard judgment. It is gracious opportunity. It's to say, which kingdom do you want to invest your life in? This one that's passing away or this one that is coming and you don't have to make it. You don't have to build it. But I mean, because it was interesting when I was studying the Isaiah text, I was looking at one of the commentaries and they were talking about Isaiah, you know, announcing, because Isaiah, a lot of Isaiah, all three Isaiahs is is Isaiah announcing judgment against Mm -hmm. the kingdoms and saying, you know, you're not you're not living the Torah, and and God can't allow this to stand. But but here's what comes after the destruction, and it's this glorious redeeming, and the and the really fulfilling of the Abrahamic um, covenant. And but I just was struck by just the unintentional irony of one of the commentators who said, like Isaiah came to announce this kingdom because some people who hear will want to be a part of it. Like not everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Just some people mm-hmm. who here will want to be a part of it. And it's just interesting to say, like, why wouldn't everyone want to be a part of it? And I think it's because a lot of us just don't think that God is that good. Like we just mm. don't think that That's good. it's possible. And so we don't want to be a part of it because we think I'd rather just bet on the hand that I have mm. than on, you know, what might be coming that really might not be good news for me. Um, so it's easier if you're on the bottom of the current systems, it's easier to welcome the coming of Christ as good news, which is why Jesus is saying like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not because rich people are morally worse than poor people. It's because rich people have more to lose in the current system and, and have a harder time. Right. And they yeah. would just have a harder time trusting that the good news could be good for them. Mm-hmm. So That's good. So we've given people, I know, what people don't know is Yolando keeps looking at me and looking at the computer and looking at his watch and pointing at it. And like, if you were at the Grove, you would know I am impervious to panicked looks of this is going really long. Ask my husband. So yeah, we're done. Um, You can find us online, um, Google uh, Derida Presbyterian Church and pop over to Yolando's website or listen to his sermons on the Podbean um, website. Did you get your Thanksgiving sermon? No, Friend. I should have recorded it. You I should know. have recorded it. Always record it. You can always decide not to post it. Uh, I know. I know. No. And if you want to check out The Grove, thegrovecharlotte.org. And if you want to listen to messages from The Grove, they are on iTunes at The Grove Charlotte. Thanks to my very good friend, Ryan, who posts them for us every week, just out of the sheer oh, nice. goodness of his heart and brilliance of his brain. And I am grateful. 